1: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And in a minute, you're gonna hear my conversation with Scott Frank, who's made a ton of cool stuff over the course of his career. His most recent project is something you have heard of and you probably have watched it because everyone has watched The Queen's Gambit. It is shockingly successful. Its success has shocked Scott Frank. Uh, Scott's a great person to talk to about the media business because he's very happy to talk about sort of the art that goes into it and also the commerce. We talk about both those things. Uh, Before we get there, one quick programming note. You have noticed... There has been a lot of media news in the last week. You got mergers, you got acquisitions, uh, you've got Warner Media uh, trying to blow up the movie business by bringing all of its big blockbuster movies to your home. Uh, day and date it's called uh, via HBO Max. And today, as I'm recording this, uh, just about every state in the in the United States, as well as the FTC, have accused. Facebook of being anti-competitive, and they would like Facebook to break itself up. They want Facebook to sell off, spin out Instagram and WhatsApp. These are all super relevant media stories, so we'll be addressing all of them in the weeks to come. So just so you think I'm not sleeping through uh, a very busy December, Um, I promise to get to all of this. But now, here's my conversation with Scott Frank, which I guarantee you're going to like. Delighted to have on the show, Scott Frank, who's been on the show three times, which is getting to be, might be a record. Thanks for coming back, Scott.
1: You're welcome. I should at least get a muffin basket or something.
2: I will send you a muffin or a basket or both. I've had Scott on a lot because I really like the stuff he makes. He makes great uh, movies and TV shows. He wrote Out of Sight, which was one of my all-time favorites. He wrote Logan. It's a superhero movie for people who don't like superhero movies. He made Godless for Netflix. We talked about that. Um, And now he's the guy that everyone knows is the creator of The Queen's Gambit, which is a ginormous success uh, period. I was going to say on Netflix, but it's such a ginormous success. I don't want to be presumptuous, but is this this sort of your biggest hit, at least
1: commercially? It might very well be, yeah. I mean, I think before this, maybe Minority Report, but I think this is bigger. I think Netflix has a bigger reach than than any film could ever have. So yeah, probably.
2: So you made Minority Report, that was what, mid-90s? 2001. OK, good research, Peter. So that's that is a giant blockbuster film with Tom Cruise when Tom Cruise is still a giant blockbuster actor. But this feels maybe like it's bigger. It's
1: definitely bigger. It's I mean, it's bigger in the sense that that it's talked about more. Um, Minority Report had this weird tale because of the technology being so prescient and mm-hmm. all of that. This is unlike anything I've ever experienced and and of anything I've ever worked on in all these years. This was the least I never would have expected this one. I was just so glad that somebody wanted to make it in the first place. <laughs> that the fact that it's become the, the response is is so great is 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 wonderful to me, and also completely bewildering.
2: I want to ask you about about how you made it and what you were thinking, but uh, just to talk about the scope and size of a Netflix hit. The Netflix never used to put out numbers in the last year or so. They started saying on some occasions. We have a really huge show here. We have a huge, and there's two kinds of huge Netflix shows in my mind. There's one, which is lots of other people have watched it. You've never heard of it. That's an Adam Sandler movie in my case or, or things like that. And then there's something like your show, which I'm reading about people. I are telling me they like it. And then Netflix says, yes, this is a huge show. Can you tell immediately the day it drops, this is working or how long does it take for it to, to pick up?
1: A couple of days, it got it became number one, It dropped into the top 10 on the service and became number one on the service very quickly. And right before it came out, there was a kind of response that I would never had before, just with the people that were seeing it early. It was very strange what was happening, this kind of unanimity in terms of this is this is just what I need right now. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the kind of loudest voice. Right now, this is just what I need. So... What do you I think always, that meant? I think that meant that the timing was good in terms of people needed something like this right now. I think what the show feels like, what it's about, a combination of things, what it looks like is sort of an antidote to what everybody's feeling, probably. Right, it's, right? it's definitely,
2: yeah, it's definitely not a now thing, right? It's a period piece about chess, yeah. which also seems like... That's a thing that no one ever wants to see, right? It's not like, not like, oh, not another period piece about chess in the '60s. Um, I've seen enough of those. Um, and then so. So you can tell, and again, you've had a successful show on Netflix before. Godless did very well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can tell; you, it, it feels different to you it right feels away.
1: Very different, and the numbers then, as the number actual numbers came in, I think it was sixty-two million people in the first ten days, or something—sixty-two million households, which translates into you know times two probably. Um, so it was a huge that way, and then it became. Last two weeks, I think it has been number one streaming in general. So it's bizarre.
2: To and that's the other thing that's really interesting, right? Because Netflix does a binge release, and, and one of the critiques for a long time about Netflix releasing everything at once versus an HBO stretching it out is you can't build an audience and things come and go very quickly. But again, I was looking at an email I sent to you in November saying, I heard people really like this. This is the middle of December. Um, do you have any sense of why this sort of ha- has had a long, as long a life as it has?
1: No. I think that the, sometimes these things feed on themselves. You know, it's done, it just starts snowballing. And mm-hmm. um, again, I think this goes down easy. You know, it's not, it's not super dark or difficult to watch or doesn't leave you feeling just bad about humans. And so I, I think that it just continues. And I don't know how much longer it will it will play that way but um you see it every now and again something just you know i remember chernobyl which was a pretty bleak but beautifully done show. I have yet
2: which. to watch it because I was never in the mood to watch massive, a show about Chernobyl.
1: Massive hit. You should watch it because it's yeah. really good. And so stuff, you know, you see this now and again. And um, and on Netflix, it happens a lot. And you and I talked about this the last time we were on the show. The thing about Netflix is because they don't have the pressure of an opening weekend, because it's it's just there forever, they also their Their algorithm comes to play after it's come out to a degree, in other words, they kind of figure out who they think is is going to watch the show and what they're going to watch before and after, and then once it's out for a week, they see who's actually watching the show and what they're actually watching before and after, and they adjust to that and those little thumbnail images are probably that you see on your when you visit yeah. the, the site. those are the most important marketing tool they have
2: yeah we we did a we did a, a seven part series about. Netflix, uh, last spring. And that's something they play up a lot is, is how much those, those thumbnails matter and it's marketing for them in lieu of everything else. Do they give you data about this is who it's working with or?
1: Yes, Yes, they do. They have charts and things where you could see. And I can't remember because I remember just being in a daze the whole time they were telling me, um, because again, I was so used to people, you know, saying, I'm really glad you made it. Look forward to seeing the next one. <laughs> um, but um, um, they, it, was, it was across the board. It was interesting who was, who was watching it. It, was, it covered, it was like a, the equivalent of, I would say, a four-quadrant movie. Very similar
2: response. So I saw we, last time you we were here we talked about Godless, which I you made with Steven Soderbergh. It's great. It is a period Western epic, beautiful thing. I, I, I made Steven Soderbergh kind of shiver because I told him I watched half of it on my phone. He got all upset. <laughs> um, so how do you go from Godless to this? Did you finish Godless and say now I want to make a period piece about chess, or was this already in the works?
1: Well, you know, my career is 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 one of a combination of, of happy accidents and. Um, shit happens. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I think I know what I'm doing. And in the case of this, this was really, I, I shot Godless and, and I really enjoyed making that. It was, it was like making three films and I loved, I just loved the directing aspect of it. And I learned a ton of it and just, it was, it was a great experience with Netflix. I would argue it was the greatest experience I've maybe ever had in a, in a career where I'm very fortunate to have had lots and lots of lovely experiences and that was terrific so i pitched a bunch of stuff to netflix thinking they'd want to do this or that things i really thought i would do i was gonna um adapt my novel into a series. there are all sorts of things all of which they passed on and this rather, is after
2: you made godless they said we this like after this after i
1: made godless so what else so, you got what else you got and they're very for everyone thinks they're not as disciplined as they are but they're really looking for what they would probably call white spaces in their programming stuff they don't already have or stuff that you know it just depends or if it's going to be expensive they want to know if it's going to work with this audience or that. so anyway um they pass they pass and apropos of nothing I was talking to Amanda Peet, who's a friend of mine. She's married to David Benioff and they're old pals. And she she had written a play about a young female tennis prodigy. And I said to her, "You, you should read The Queen's Gambit. It's a great novel. I've tried to make it as a movie for years, which is true. Bill Horberg, the producer, and I tried to make it many times years ago. I said, you should read this novel. If you're writing about a young female prodigy and her mom, you really should read The Queen's Gambas, written in 83, blah, blah, blah. She read it and loved it. And then David called me and said, this is amazing. I love this book. And they were both going on and on about how brilliant it was. And I thought to myself, yes, it is brilliant. <laughs> Wait, I, it. I, I called Bill and I said, you know, it occurred to me that maybe the way to do The Queen's Gambit is not as a movie. Maybe that's the problem. And maybe if you do it as a limited series, it has more of a reason for being. And also in terms of the adaptation, it can be about more. It can be about more of what the book is about, whereas doing it as a, just as a movie, it becomes so reductive in the adaptation that it just becomes a sports story. Um, and I really wanted to do something about genius. And I went to Netflix, and I assumed they would pass, and I would go somewhere else. And they um, loved it. Cindy Holland loved it, said, this is great. And all of them read it and said, we want to do this now. They only gave me half the money they gave me for godless. But did, make, did they explain why?
2: Because there's no horses, or they're just like it's the it's the new Netflix no, for spending less.
1: No, because they were they were correct in assuming that this is what we all thought it was. It's going to have a very small special audience. It's not going to you know it's tricky. It's about chess and the themes and the kind of emotion of it are universal perhaps, but it's it's not an it's not an obvious sell. And in fact, um, Blair Fetter, one of the executives at Netflix, would call me up. In, in Berlin, where we were shooting all the time, and say they're making fun of me, at, at, and you know the other execs. How's your yeah, chess your show fun. going? How's your little, how's your little chess show going? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it happened, and they said yes, and it came together very, very quickly, just like Godless did when Cindy said she wanted to make Godless. I was shooting within six months of her saying yes.
2: When you say Netflix thinks it's going for white space, I get what that means, but then when you look at the Netflix top ten often, it's like, oh, they're, they found a thing that works and they're making ten of them. Whether it's a reality show or a rom-com, um, you did a western for them, um, that's not a new thing, uh, they don't have a ton of them, but like a lot of times it seems like they're doing stuff that already exists and they're doing more of it, and that's not bad, but they're not breaking ground. This is just, You said this is kind of a Sports movie, but it's pretty novel beyond that. And again, it's, it's, you say it's light, but there's, it's plenty dark. It's a dark show about chess in the 60s. So, what do you think they thought that white space was?
1: I think it was a combination of things. I think it was the fact that it was a young woman at the center of it. And I think a lot of times white space to them means something. Um, this feels really different. And and there may be other categories where they've are, they're, they're copying themselves, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I don't pay that close attention, but just in my own conversations with them they're really on the make for something different or frequently when they've passed on things they've said, and I'm always teasing them about it, but, but I, I, they it's, we have a project that's similar. We're doing something that's like this now. And, um or we don't know who this would be for or this would be just super expensive and we don't know if anyone would would watch this so it's a lot of traditional reasons for things getting passed on this i would say it was partly because it was a young woman at at the center and i think they were looking for more and more diversity across the board mm-hmm. in their stories i think that when you read the book it's just good it's a great story you can feel what that story is right away and i think that once they read the book they knew that this was a, a story full of all sorts of things, had values beyond just playing chess and just a sports story. And I also think that the period was something that they were really interested in. I think the Cold War period and all of that, just something set there was, was, felt different. And um, we talked about what I was thinking about doing with and how I wanted to, doing with it and how I wanted to direct it and so on. And I just think all of that felt fresh to them. But
2: at a at a price, definitely yeah. at a price. Okay. Let's talk about the chess. Um, I've seen and read searching for Bobby Fischer, and I like both of those. And I grew up in the '70s, so I have a vague memory of chess being a thing that people used to pay attention to on a global scale, um, but haven't thought about it beyond that. How do you approach the chess? Right, I assume the tension is this has to be real, and this has to you have to th- you have to believe that they are really playing chess at a high level. And also, it has to be at least vaguely understandable to an audience which presumably has never played chess or has no idea what's going on. Um, But you don't do a lot of, like, explaining of what's going on. I I don't think you ever explain what the Queen's Gambit is.
1: No. And I think that... One of the um, appealing things about the book is whenever I would give someone the book to read and I passed it out a lot, they would say, oh, it's about chess. And I would say, listen, you don't have to give a wit about chess or know a wit about chess, but you will love the book and the chess games are going to be really tense for you. Even though you don't necessarily know what's happening, because Tevis, Walter Tevis, the novelist, does such a good job describing them and describing the emotions around the chess game and what she's feeling while she's playing and all of that. So uh, they are embedded in the book to begin with. And one of the attractive things about the book for me was that you didn't know about chess and that chess was the context, but it could have been anything in, in, in many ways. So that was a huge appeal. And so what I decided to do when I was you know, writing the scripts is making sure that what is the least amount of chess you can get away with in the show? And there's a lot of chess games in the show already. Mm-hmm. I think there's still 20-some games or something. And in the book, there are much more. And so you can't have too many because I know that it will, it's hard to show an entire chess match because they're slow and we're not doing speed chess. Bobby Fischer was speed chess. Mm-hmm. And even as is, I have a feeling I'm going to have to accelerate the games, you know, when they're, when they're playing somehow. So how can we get away with the least amount of chess and how can we sh- have drama understand, be inside the kind of emotion, emotional context of each game or each match before she plays so that you're going into it. It's not just if she wins or loses, it is is if she wins or loses, then this is going to mm-hmm. happen. You know, there's a whole consequence that you're kind of aware of. And so to do that, you know, I was, uh, that would help, you watch the games. And then I would have people explain just enough around the game. And they would talk about less about the specific moves and more about the tone of her winning and losing. When you have announcers Mm -hmm. more she's in trouble, they'll say the specifics, but what you latch onto is she's in trouble or he's in trouble or that's very aggressive. or Mm -hmm. That's very unusual. Or I can't believe she did that. No one ever does that or things like that to give a color, but it was very difficult.
2: But then you also took time to make sure that it was real or as real as possible. You had Garry Kasparov on, uh, uh, as a consultant. I was reading an interview with him. He said, you know, for the final match, I had to like sort through thousands of matches. (laughs) This is a real thing. The game they're playing is a real thing or I've modified it. And, you know, I'm assuming there's, a few thousand people in the world, maybe it's 10 or 100,000 people who would be able to look at that and identify that. Um, presumably, you know, no one in your target audience would care. So what is the point of having that degree of verisimilitude?
1: Um, and Bruce Pandolfini was also an advisor who, as you know from... Bob searching for bobby fisher was the real teacher Mm and searching for bobby fisher he taught um he taught josh and um he was also walter tevis's consultant on the novel when he wrote the novel and in fact the title is was bruce's bruce's suggestion well my dad was an airline pilot and he used to hate going to the movies and seeing the pilots wearing their hats in the cockpit or saying shit like, come in, please. It used to drive him crazy, uh-huh. you know? And no one else cared, you know, when they're watching Airport 77, how everybody talked. But my dad did. And it was really important to me. And when I met with Gary and I met with Bruce, I met with Gary initially to try and get him to play the part of Borgoff, the Russian, to see if he would do it. And um, he was too busy lecturing around the world, but he's being, saying, Gary, Kasparov, the, yeah. being Gary Kasparov, Being but he said, I'll be, I'll be a consultant for you, which was turned out to be even better. But they said, you have chess. We're tired of seeing chess boards on screen where the white square is on the left, you know, where they just don't take the time to set it up. Right. And chess has never been presented. Right. And we know it's impossible because of the limits of time and so on. But, but if you can be as accurate as possible, that would be great. And I felt like Having a rule to make it accurate made the aesthetic better. It made me, made in terms of my direction, it focused me in a way. And so we had a chess summit where we invited, you know, uh, the consultants were there. We had the film editor, the cinematographer, the production designer, the props folks. Everybody was there. Script supervisor had to be there to know all the ins and outs where we could go over each match and talk about what would the boards look like. What would the pieces look like in the Kentucky tournament? Well, they would probably play on pieces of paper. They wouldn't even play on real chessboards. Would the pieces be plastic, or would they be marble, or would they be wood, or would they be what? And so on. And
2: where were the, where, the where were where were the compromises? Where was Gary Kasparov saying, "Look, this is not authentic. This is not real. They would never do this." And you say, yeah, but we're, we're making a movie here. Or we we have a, we have some kind of restraint here, and if we made it literally literal, then no one would ever watch what we're making. It, there would
1: be in a few places. The compromises would be. I tried to speed the games up, so especially in the openings players were moving quickly through their openings quicker than they might be in a in a real match um i have a memory
2: of 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 old-timey chess being like people walking away from the table for a day or something and coming back and making oh
1: yeah they adjourn they will adjourn they will do but they'll even just get up and walk around the room while someone is is making their move there's all sorts of things that go on but they're very slow games can last hours and hours and hours and do also, in tournaments, you may have, you may play 11 games or something for the championship, not just one. Mm-hmm. There's some where you kind of go the way we did, but we just assumed all our tournaments are going to be like this. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know. So
2: you wanted to hit fast forward a
1: bunch and that was sort of. I had to because I think for those who don't know chess, but if the spirit of it is true and the moves, if you can fast frame any shot on the board and their moves are accurate then then that will be a huge step forward. And what they're thinking and kind of the way they speak and all of that, I can, I can make up for the little things where we take certain liberties. Um, there are a couple inaccuracies just because of editing where I wanted to use a different shot where uh, the board, the display board, might not exactly match the screen. Um, I think I have one or two of those in the show, but whenever you're looking at the board, and even, by the way, I thought if we did it right, you wouldn't even have to see the board. You could just see their faces sometimes for the drama. But even when we're shooting it that way, they were really moving the pieces.
2: Did you ever experiment with like, let's try to show chess in a whole new light and we're going to, I don't know, we're going to show you from the bishop's perspective or, or you know, wild stuff. It's, its its You do a couple things. Where she envisions the board on the ceiling and you show that. And there's a couple times where you're sort of cutting and there's some music, but it's generally pretty much they're playing chess. Did you ever think... Let's find a new way of explaining what this is, maybe graphics. And-
1: I thought for 20 seconds about that, probably uh-huh. in the shower one day, and then realized, boy, that is going to really lead to disaster. It'll become slick. It'll become about mm-hmm. that. Whereas all these other shots, the ceiling stuff, the board canting and so on, it's all from her point of view. It's all a manifestation, not, we're not trying to get cute in terms of how we shoot the chess. We're, we're trying to get inside her head. And so the rules for ourselves in shooting the chess, chess matches where each chess match had its own personality. What, and what is happening in the story and what is the tone of this match? Where are we? And then we figured out how to shoot it based on that.
2: So this, uh, this is seven episodes, limited series. Godless, I think was also seven. Yep. Yep. So you've done this before. How does making a seven-episode show sort of change the way you structure something, as opposed to a movie, as opposed to a show that was going to come out weekly over ten or twelve weeks? It's two different um, questions. One is one is one is the seven one is a seven-episode limited series question. Period. And one is when you know it's going to be binge dropped or dropped at once, and I might consume it all in three days on my phone and at home. Um, does that change any of the way you you create it?
1: Um, because I don't really know what I'm doing. I shoot everything the same way with the same philosophy. And I just shot Godless and Queen's Gambit like I was shooting a a seven hour movie. Um, we, we scheduled it and, you know, boarded the show exactly as if it were just a long movie shot out each location, as opposed to sometimes in series television, you may shoot it an episode at a time.
2: Uh huh. But what about in terms of the right? like the 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 end of the first episode, and I'm assuming anyone who's listened to the, has watched the shows, who's listened to this has watched the show, right? you You do that crazy climax up to the overdose um and there's no way you're finishing that episode and not going immediately into two which i guess i'm sure is your intent but if you if this wasn't something where you were going to binge it and you're going to make me wait a week to watch the next next episode would that change or it's still that's just how you end a good chapter
1: and by the way it didn't end that way originally in the script the script carried on for another 10 pages which i shot and I thought it would be better to end begin with Anya and end with Anya. So the original first episode ended with her waking up older, and there was a whole other sequence on the ceiling that took her from being twelve years old to being her age and you know being the older actress. Mm-hmm. And I thought that is going to be the thing that's going to keep you because now we've got her. And the producer Bill Bill Horber kept saying to me, you know, every time he'd see her steal the pills, he would say, boy, that feels like the end, doesn't it? I would go, no, no, there's 10, 12, 15 more minutes that we have to do because she got in trouble and she's punished. And there's all this other I stuff. I was,
2: I was waiting. I'm like, well, she's obviously the next scene is going to be her getting her stomach pumped or waking up in the hospital. Oh, and you're live.
1: She woke up, she woke up and she, you know, and she was scolded and forced to set up chairs and do all kinds of things, all of which we cut and didn't need, and all of which I loved. And um, so it's trial and error, you know, just like it is with a movie. I rebalanced the whole show. Also, as with Godless, this was six scripts that I turned into seven episodes. So whatever I was thinking, I was thinking wrong both times. And on Godless, I thought, okay, I, I screwed up. It's too, it took too long. It had to be seven episodes. It probably even could have been eight episodes. I'm gonna get it right on the Queen's Gambit. I'm gonna nail it. These scripts are gonna be shorter, and it's gonna be six episodes. And wouldn't you know it? In the cutting room, I could feel the balance was off, and it's just it's less how I approach it than how I deal with what the story I've told. I still tell the story, and I break it up the best I can in screenplay form. In the you know, I end each episode where I think it's a it's a good spot. But at the same time, until I actually see it, I don't know. Does Netflix have
2: an opinion about we'd like things to be longer versus shorter or more episodes as opposed to less because this or that? they,
1: They would just like to make sure that in the first episode, you understand that that's a lot of people might turn it off. And so, be mindful of the fact. But they never insist on anything. They tell you what they've learned. They give you their opinion, just and just just their own creative opinion. And they're very smart. We think this is too slow. We don't think you need this, or we'd love to have more of this. But do what you want. Do what you want. And um, they're that way through the whole the whole process. And so, they there's no real rules. What they've they told me godless, Nobody watches the um, title sequence. And I said, I have to have a title sequence. So I did it. And on this, I remembered no one watched the title sequence. So I didn't have one until the end. <laughs> it's the very last episode at the end of the last. episode, oh, There's that's a title funny. sequence. That's funny. Yeah, that's that's they, where I saw it too. And they play it. They play it all out at the end. They won't jump to the next show. So I said, okay, then they'll probably watch that. So, so things like that, that's really, those are the conversations.
2: Going to take a quick break.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe?
2: What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn?
0: Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird.
1: (laughs) That's This Week on the Gray Area,
2: available wherever you get your podcasts. And now we're back with Scott. So we're going to come back and talk more about the show. I asked uh, um, Darmuth People on Twitter for questions, and they had a bunch. Um, but I want to talk about the business because we talk about that occasionally when you're on. Um, let's start with Cindy Holland. She she signed off on on Godless um, when we did this uh, d- series about Netflix last spring. When we were talking to her, and she brought up the story of you pitching this thing and and you, her telling you to make it longer. Um, <laughs> and then she signed off on this. Now she's no longer there, and there's like a whole new regime of, of content people uh, who've been sort of promoted up at Netflix. How will that change work you do at Netflix, do you think?
1: Interestingly, first of all, I love her, and I hope I get to work with her wherever she decides to go, because she changed my life. So let's just be clear. I really do feel that I've been doing this now since I was a punk, so 36 years, and she you know, changed my life. Late in your career. Late in my career, and I thought I was having a pretty good time. I really was not complaining, and she just made me see things in a whole different way. That being said, and I and I will love to work with her wherever she goes. The folks that worked with her, Peter Friedlander and Blair Federer and Laura Delahay, all of them are still there, and I'm still working with them and enjoy working with them, and I'm sure we'll continue to work with them on something. And so my and the the post production folks the production folks the the nuts and bolts side they're all the same too and they're all lovely and were huge help to me so it hasn't changed for me i suppose if there is a, a if the, the mandate the company mandate changes that might affect me but i i haven't seen any of that because yeah, there's a yeah, general
2: it. sense that like, they're less interested in quirky stuff and they're less interested in sort of take a flyer on this project and they're trying to make bigger and bigger shows for a bigger audience. I think people, million people
1: are always guessing based on what they see mm-hmm. in the moment. People take snapshots of the company, but they're doing so much and they're so international they're doing so much around the world, all different kinds of things, and they're doing homegrown projects too now, which are also gonna affect what they make. And so I don't know that I could, I, for me personally, I could say that they are, they're not doing this or they're not doing that, and in my experience, They did two things no one else was doing. They were the de' Medici family, both with Godless. No one wanted to make a Western when I brought that to them. No one was making Westerns, and now they're making a lot of them. And certainly the Queen's Gambit is is by no means a sure thing at all. So from my own experience is that they will take a flyer. It just depends on the economics and and certain things. depends on who's doing it, what it is. I think they have a host of stuff that goes into their decision-making matrix that way.
2: So when you and I first talked, you were still in the movie business. Uh, I think Logan was about to talk about it. Remember the movie business? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but you were quite clear, like, look, the, the, the movies that I'm interested in seeing and making are going away. They're in theatrical distribution. So now it's the Amazons and Apples and Netflix that are either making those movies or making versions of those movies. I watched Godless on my nice TV in my basement, and I also watched it on my iPhone in various rooms. Um, Do you want to make stuff that runs in theaters at some point again? Do you want to make a movie that runs in a movie theater?
1: I want to make movies again. I'm going to make a movie again. Um, I definitely love movies. I'm becoming more and more agnostic as to how people watch them. Because I can't control it. And I used to get really upset. I would be on the subway here in New York and somebody would be watching Marco Polo, you know, which Mm -hmm. is this gorgeous show on their Samsung Galaxy or whatever. It used to drive me nuts. I wanted to go be that guy, you know. Hey, put that down. (laughs) Hey, what are you doing? Do you have no idea what you're missing? But um, now I feel like that's a fool's errand. I feel like as romantic as I am about movie theaters, the experience is, is not so much what it was when I loved it. When I do sit in a theater and watch something on the big screen, even when we were mixing um, Queen's Gambit and Gallup, we're on the mix stage, sound mix stage, giant screen. I thought, wow, this is so beautiful. It doesn't change the way I shoot. I'm still going to shoot everything the same way I've always shot. Um, but if people see it on TV, I just want people to see it. Mm-hmm. I just want people to see it and and... I will make movies. I will make stories that are two hours um, for sure. But I can't, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know even what the movie going experience is. For me, the movie going experience got worse and worse. I do think that stuff like Alamo Drafthouse or or theaters around college campuses, doing kind of programming that's different will be an interesting thing that I think there's a whole business that nobody has, has exploited yet there. Yeah,
2: I'm really, among the many pandemic uh, pangs I have, I really miss going to the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. That's, that's yeah. a great With way to Metrograph,
1: see it. The Metrograph, you know, all these things, these programs and a lot of movies that people were never able to see on a big screen and so on. And I feel like that's something that could happen, but it's gonna be all superheroes all the time. It's gonna be giant event stuff. At these theaters, because you've got huge multiplexes with twenty-seven screens, so that you can show twenty-seven movies—the same movie twenty-seven different times a day—and so I'm not sure. And and a lot that business
2: you don't want to be in, right? It seems like you're you've you you know you don't need to do it, and you don't want to do it. You don't want to write the next Avengers, even if they come. No,
1: and and I'm not. I don't know that I'd be any good at it. You Uh know, Um, anytime I've done it, it's been again accidentally.
2: So um, we're recording this three days, four days after Warner said we're just skipping, well, we're not skipping movie theaters, but we're bringing all our movies to your home opening day uh, in 2021. And there's lots of, it turns out there's lots of details still to get worked out. Um, as someone who's in the business, um, what do you make of that move?
1: Um, I make what I've read. <laughs> what, what,
2: what, um, what, what do you think? It Do you think it permanently changes something? Or do you think this is a one-year thing? And only Warner's is going to do it, and we go back to normal. I'm, to I'm done
1: predicting because I uh, I would have never predicted anything that's happened in the past year, and I and um, going back to 2016, I, I there's everything that's happened, major things I could not have predicted. I do think the following: I think there are a couple significant things that this bodes. One, I think that they had huge plans for HBO Max, and I think that that the the rollout of h b o max was for me just as a consumer confusing i didn't there's so many h b o s it took me days to get from my yep. h b o account to get set up. I didn't know what was on there. Yep. I couldn't tell what the the site is not that really easy to navigate. it just wasn't. Good and I, and, um, it was very tricky for me. And all of the other sites, Hulu and Amazon too, are also they're not as user friendly
2: as I wish they would be. It's you know? weird that they're not that good in twenty twenty because you think we're well, just copy Netflix, just do that, and they do, Netflix. but they do like a C version of Netflix. It's like
1: really strange, and you're you just how you it's I, I don't know. It's very confusing, but. I think that, that if they're going to survive, if anyone's going to survive, regardless of what happens to movies, you're going to have to be in streaming. That's where it's all going. Everybody's been saying that, that it was better to be a phone company than a cable company, and that that's really kind of where it's all happening. And I think that with Warner Brothers, I think that they need to fatten up HBO Max. And I think by having all these movies, whether they'll do that forever, who knows, um, but I think that they need a reason for people to come because I don't, there, I don't think that a lot of people were, were said, what, seven, 8 million. It wasn't a huge number. Of yeah, it's a small number.
2: As talent, as someone who was, would have, may have deals where, you know, part of your compensation is going to be based on revenue and part of that would be based on box office. Do you go, wow, that's really going to change things? Or do you go in the end, it's the, the, the size of the pie is the same. Or it's I'm gonna, it's whatever percentage it is. So how is So walk it's people through what changes. It's
1: faster for creative people because the entire revenue stream, all of these become closed ecosystems. So when you make a show at Netflix, depending on the person making the show and the show, they will quote unquote buy you out of your back end. And it could be a lovely number, but if the show is a huge hit, like say mm-hmm. Queen's Gambit, whatever they bought you out for is not going to be what you might have done if you had had a real piece of the show
2: worldwide now their the line world world is we're going to sure. make we're going to make good in those cases because well, presumably I, I, right I, yeah. had you presumably had you made queen's gambit somewhere else traditionally theatrical and it was this equivalent level of success um you you're your upside would be way up if there was some sort of participation right um, and in this case it's Supposedly, cap, but they're, I'm assuming they've also gone back to you and said, "Hey, we're going to reopen the books, and here's a new check." No,
1: and by the way, I'm not expecting them to. Um, really, I I was paid a lot, and um, and I got a backpack, so there's that. Um, we joke about that, but um, I don't know. I made that deal, you know, so I don't expect them to to come back and say, "Here, we're gonna we're gonna make good." But I think places like Disney Plus, they pay you nothing. Their back-end buyout is really low, and I think everybody's pushing back against that and that could be a problem because I do think if you're competing for the same talent, that may become a chip. Um, but you have lost a giant piece of revenue that, you know, residuals are, what are they now? It's tricky. It's, it's much trickier. And if you're going to show all those movies on HBO max without a premium, just, It's part of the service. Yep. And I understand why they're doing that. But as an artist who expected to maybe (laughs) make some more money uh, on the back end, I'm curious to know how they're going to compensate all of the people on all of those movies. That's a complication. But the bigger question is what you're asking, which is, what does this do for movies? And I would argue... The better question is what's going to happen to storytelling, because it's clear everybody wants stories. They want documentaries. They want anything with a story, podcasts. And I would say all this is doing in a good way is making it all more accessible. And we can be purists about the size of the screen um, or the way the income stream happens. But in terms of a consumer, for a consumer, this is fucking great.
2: Yeah, it seems great. I'm I'll, I'm assuming it also is too good to be true and at some point there'll be a retrenchment and that will be less good for me as, as someone who likes watching stuff and you as someone who makes stuff at this that, that this is all ba- this spending race that they're on is all based on the premise that there will be four or five some number of winners, everyone else goes away, the market shrinks and you can no longer shop Godless or Queen's Gambit to seven or eight different places. Um, there'll be three or four, and you're either gonna be a Disney guy or Warner guy or a Netflix guy. Is, do you imagine that future?
1: Um, yeah, not soon. I I don't know, possibly. I mean, it's hard to say. I think that a lot of players are gonna fall out. A lot of people are gonna get combined. It has to be simplified. I mean, people I'm paying ten dollars here and twelve dollars yeah. there, and you know, maybe that magazine subscription kind of philosophy is okay with people, but I don't know, somebody's gonna s- come up with a different model that might eat everybody's lunch. It's, it's very hard to say. Um, I just think, again, what what there there's too many stories, but there is, at the same time, there's a hunger for people, that people want stories.
2: So uh, uh, people who listen to this podcast uh, are the kind of people who are fascinated with Quibi, and I'm not gonna belabor it, um, But part of the pitch of Quibi was, we're gonna allow filmmakers to make a new kind of thing. Um, It's not just that it'll turn when you turn your cameras, that we're gonna do things with POV and this show is only available at night and and we're really gonna sort of max out what the tech can do. Does that appeal to you as someone who likes to experiment with stuff? Or do you wanna sort of give me a camera and I don't care where it goes and leave me out of it?
1: As a rule, the latter. As a rule, I just wanna be able to tell my stories. Um, What I liked about Quibi, which I think they, they sort of were the right train but the wrong Track. I don't know that they made any mistake. I think it was who they got. They couldn't get great stories. They didn't get, and the stories all felt repurposed. Mm-hmm. You know, they felt like here's a regular movie just chopped up into bites.
2: Here's a CBS you know, show we're going to show you over the course CBS of twelve weeks show
1: or whatever. It wasn't. It didn't have that one show that got everybody there to to begin with. And there's these phenomenons all over the world shows that were kind of created sort of underground that became sort of mini quibbies. There's that, um, the teenage show in Denmark. I forget the name of it now. Where, yes, yes, exactly. Facebook. And, one, yeah. yeah. And it was huge. And, and you, when you would watch and it becomes, but people are into the melodrama, they're watching a story. Yeah, and um, and it was organic. It wasn't. They didn't say we're going to create this kind of show on this format. Here's the mechanics, and then we're going to build stories for it. The story dictated what it was. And I think everything is changing right now. And I think there's this democratizing of being able to make shit now. You can shoot on your iPhone. You can cut on your laptop. You can you, anybody can do it. It's and it doesn't mean anybody is good at it, but it also just it's going to influence. There's going to be this kind of influence. And yeah, I think John Landgraf is right when he says there's too many stories. There's just a glut, 600 or whatever. Yeah. I
2: don't, I don't think there's too many. Uh, I love, I I, I love the fact that I can discover a show that was on five years ago. I never heard of And and, Yeah. But you
1: you could probably still do that if there were 300 and to your earlier point, you know, not all of these things can survive. So at a certain point you, you become overwhelmed and people are just going to watch Friends. I mean, how am often are you sitting there saying what do i want to watch what do i want to watch spending an hour and you end up just watching the office or some fucking thing
2: (laughs) yeah although i watch the office or friends or whatever because i actually want like comfort food i know what this is it's half an hour i can stop it midway through it's fine um let's 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 throw some twitter questions by the way i I, did you did you get off twitter i know you you were on it I for a minute. Yeah, I
1: was on it when I wrote my book for about an hour, and I just, it wasn't for me. I was very, I'm allergic to the whole social media. I went
2: looking for you today, and I found another Scott Frank, and he actually makes a great wine that I like a lot, so it Dorf. all worked out well. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Owen Ty, I think it's called. It's Air Guitar. It's great. Look him up. Um, questions from Twitter. I already asked you the one about the binge release model. Uh, So people have questions slash critiques about the end of the show, which I'm sure you've heard of at this point. Uh, Why did the finale have a wildly different tone than the rest of the series? It went from a dark tale about substance abuse to a feel-good Disney movie. Has has anyone landed that one on you before? No, no one's asked you that question directly.
1: I don't even agree with that. That's fair Uh, enough. um, I agree that that it was very emotional in the end, but it wasn't sentimental. I think that it was all payoffs to set early on to Benny telling her you can't play alone. You know, it was her the whole time trying to work without, you know, taking pills and do things like that. And we'd seen her lose a lot the mm-hmm. whole time, you know, and we'd seen her be defeated. And I think, I'm not sure, I, I like the ending. I don't think, I disagree with the premise of the question.
2: Yeah, so if the first episode is, this is a grim orphanage, drug abuse, overdose, you don't feel compelled to have episode seven match episode one in terms of tone. You, There's you want to plenty, the
1: plenty of dark things in the last episode yeah. that happened. It's there, but it also, I think at that point, just in terms of the rhythm of the show, it was time to start delivering other values. You know, it was time to start being. And I felt it was all organic to to what was coming
2: ahead. Um, another critique, and then we'll be done with pointed questions. Uh, These I love them. I'm interested in more. hearing him respond to some of the critiques of Jolene. This is the black character, and why yeah, she was thrown that. back into the plot as savior at the end. And you, I, I saw her come on, and you, you reference it in the episode. But you, you, t- you. Enough of my words. Your words. How, how, how should we think about Jolene? And, and, and since you have presumably heard this critique before, is there something that you would have redone now?
1: Yeah. Uh, answering the last question first, no, I wouldn't do anything different. So Jolene, she meets Jolene in the orphanage when they're very little. They live there for 10 years or whatever together. And they're the only two, they're two outcasts who never get adopted, um, for whatever reason. Jolene, Um, obviously because she's black and says so and she's stuck there. And she basically says we're lifers. So there are friends from the beginning. She isn't saving her. She actually teaches her how to take the pills (laughs) in the book. She molests her, but I cut that out of the, of the show. Um, But they become good friends and family. And then they don't see each other for a while. And Beth goes on with her life. And um, at a certain point, she is at rock bottom and it isn't that jolene shows up because beth needs her jolene shows up to tell her that the janitor died the one person in her life yeah. who who was magic you know and if that had been morgan freeman then i would have say okay you've got a really good argument here um with mr scheibel but um she shows up and she sees that it's disaster here And basically she's she's just there as as any other friend would be, regardless of what. But you
2: were but you were hyper aware of the magical Negro trope right? because you reference it in the story. Yes,
1: I was. And so I really and the more I wrote and I got a note from Netflix saying, are you worried about this? And I, and I, so I wrote this whole scene, which is where it's an insult for Jolene because she's, and and Moses and I, the actor and I talked about this a lot because they grew up, they're family, they're related to one another. She's there because she's supposed to be there. And the story is about this girl who's isolated herself, this girl who has deliberately isolated herself because nothing ever lasts. No one ever delivers and so on and so forth, beginning with, with her mother. So when Jolene comes back, she's there not because she's magically showed up. She's there because she'd come there for another reason. She stays. And in the book, she like gets her in shape. They go to the gym. They go jogging. None of that happens. She's, she's, she gives her money. She loans her money. And the other thing I changed was to fight against it was she's successful in her own right. She's this one person you never thought yeah. would ever leave. Um, has become, she earns money. She's going to be a lawyer. She's, she has the money to give, to loan her for this. And so I thought that was sort of interesting to me. I never thought of her as being magical or a savior or anything, but I thought we, with our own kind of, (laughs) you know, our own way of thinking might think that, and so that's why I wrote that. Little
2: so you wrote that, and you said, but she's basically like, I'm not your magical Negro, which she is like, something very close you, to that. I'm not your magical Negro. <laughs> um, because the other way to deal with it, or one another way to deal with it, was to just say, you know what, it's 2019, it's 2020, it's too difficult. It, it's only downside for me. I'm just going to write around this. We're not going to have that plot point, or she's no longer going to be black, or whatever it is, just so I don't have to deal with this. And someone at Netflix presumably thought the same way. So you, you had to spend some time thinking about it. And you, like you said, you talked to the actress about it. You still felt I want to go through with it. I liked that character.
1: I liked the character of Jolene. I just thinking about this woman. Who, who started off an orphan, had nothing, no one thought anything of, has become this very successful woman. And this other woman, who no one thought anything of, and had become successful, completely sabotaged it. And Jolene's most important line to her is, you've been so good at what you do for so long, you don't know what it's like for the rest of us. That is the big line from Jolene. And, but Jolene has shown up and now become this very successful woman, and she she decides to help her, and I feel like I don't I don't see why that it has to be magical, and I understand why people do, but I liked that
2: story arc. I just liked it. When you when you roll it. that out and you get that feedback, which you kind of expected you were going to get, does do you go, man, I wish people did, you know, why am I, why, why, why you guys don't get it, or maybe I should have tweaked it in some way? You're like, nope, this is it, I made it. If you don't like it, you like it. Or if you have a critique, that's fine.
1: Um, the other way I would have gotten just as she had, to, I wanted her to turn down the women, the Christian crusade women. Mm-hmm. And the Benny could have helped her loan her money. I would have gotten shit for that. Mm-hmm. If Towns had helped her, I would have gotten shit for that. If the State Department gave her money, I think that's just easy, isn't it? And so I feel like their relationship and their friendship was really interesting to me. And she was sort of left behind in the story. And I liked very much in the book when she came back. And in the book, Beth called her up and says, will you come help me? I need your help. And then she gets her clean. And then while she's there, Mr. Scheibel dies. And she really is this sort of magical figure who who helps her, who saves her. And I even had, I even cut out, there's a line when she gets in the car after she sees Mr. Scheibel's basement and she's finally broken down and she's crying in the yeah. car with Jolene. And I had her say, help me, help me. And we shot it and I cut it because I thought, you know, again, I just, it doesn't, for me, this is their friendship. This is their relationship. They've been sisters since they were very early. She old. doesn't need to say that. She doesn't need to say that. She shows up at the house and she sees all this. You know, what's going on? And you don't even know she's there and they're playing squash after the funeral, but you don't know is she there? What's she do, you know, is she living there? Are mm-hmm. they getting together in Lexington? What's going on? You know, and she just says, you know, and, and Jolene says, You shouldn't have bought all those dresses. Maybe if you hadn't have brought all those fucking clothes, you could go to Russia. But the dresses is, oh. are so great. Yeah. Here, I'll, I'll
2: leave you to that. There's several ah. questions about aesthetics. Yeah. I'll yes. just do the boil down one. Please ask about aesthetics. Chilly bookish chess, sumptuous mid-century style, inspiration, question mark. Um... Was it always sort of built in, like this is this show is going to look this way? She's gonna have amazing. She's gonna she's gonna start off wearing rags that get literally burnt, and she's gonna get more and more fabulous. And we're gonna lingering shots of grand hotel lobbies, and that's gonna be a really important part of the show. Or did that sort of build up as you're making it?
1: No, that was always. There from the get go in the script. She was always obsessed with fashion. She was always, she would look at other people and want to dress like other people. She shoes. would see movie stars. She would see shoes. It started very young with the shoes. Um, even when she goes on her, her bender, she sees, you know, the singer from Shocking Blue and she starts doing her makeup like mm-hmm. that, albeit terribly. And so she wants to, she's always trying to reinvent herself until the end when she just is herself, you know, and she's always trying to be something, trying to figure out who and what she is. So that was always a part of it. And just in terms of, again, because it's chess, keeping the world of chess and making the aesthetic grander and grander and more interesting would play against the fact that people's preconceived notions about the game itself.
2: It was funny. I, uh, you know, everyone has that reaction of like you're, you're at home binge watching stuff during the pandemic and you see images of people, you know, doing non-pandemic activities and it seems weird. I generally don't have that. And this one I did because you make so much of the travel and the hotels and I didn't realize I missed business travel <laughs> as much as I do. But like going to a nice hotel was a thing. Yeah. And, and you do a great job of playing up how big a deal it was to get on a plane for most Americans. In the 50s and the 60s, how exciting yeah. it is for them to just you go to up. a hotel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they would serve you, you know, cocktails on the cart and the whole, you know, it was all very glamorous. Very, very glamorous.
2: glamorous. Um, a couple people asked about season two. It's called a limited series. That means there's no season two, right? No season you never, two. Dude, do, does Netflix come back and go, I know we called it a limited series, but couldn't she play I more chess I in don't. the 70s?
1: I, they haven't i i have trouble imagining that they would it kind of feels like we ruin we'd ruin what came before if we did i agree uh,
2: do you want to turn shaker the novel you mentioned into a film or a series you referenced it i early.
1: do i want to turn it into a limited series i'm just not sure when it's super violent yeah and it's um there's certain racial issues in there that talk about being tricky and potentially problematic um the whole gang world Mm -hmm. and so on i just i want to i want to think about how to do it and be very careful with it but i would love to do it
2: i will i will i will stream it immediately i will not wait a respectful amount of time
1: (laughs) i am though right now writing the sequel i am i am a third of the way through the the sequel for to shaker what's
2: your what's the next thing you're making that i'm going to see on the screen
1: Uh, The next thing I'm going to write for a different director, it's for Johann Rank, who actually did Chernobyl. I'm going to adapt The Sparrow, the great Mary Doria Russell novel from the 90s about Jesuits who make first contact on a planet in Alpha Centauri. It's really amazing to prove God, the existence of God. They hear music um, being down from earth at the, at the, Ocinebo, or however you say it in Puerto Rico, the, the telescope that just fell down and they, um, they're the only ones who can afford to send anyone is the Vatican. And it's like right now, 2020 or whatever, but, um, it takes 60 years of earth time to get there. It's only a year and a half of travel, but everything goes wrong when they get to this planet and they meet these people. I don't
2: know any of these references, but I'll watch it it's fantastic
1: it's so good and i another one i tried to adapt and, and it's the the there's a priest who is a linguist who goes with the, the team there's so half of them are jesuits because you know jesuits are the scientists and the explorers and they want to go there um like i said to prove the existence of god and when they get there they meet a very peaceful sweet kind of gathering type people. And they realized these people could not have been the ones who sent the signal. Will I see
2: this in a movie theater? Is it a show? What what it? It's
1: gonna be a limited series on FX and Hulu.
2: Okay. Well, I have a subscription to those as well. Yes. (laughs) All right, Scott Frank. I thought this was gonna be a quick catch up and look at us, nearly an hour. Look at us. (laughs) Thank you for your time. I always love talking to you. I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. We will talk again
1: soon, please.
2: Thanks again to Scott Frank. Like I said, that was our third conversation and I'm grateful every time he comes and talks to me. I bet we'll have them on again one day. Uh, thanks again to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing the show. Thanks to our sponsors who let us bring you this show for free for $0. And thanks to you guys. Thanks for your notes. Thanks for your encouragement. Thanks for telling other people about the show. We'll see you soon.